1954, uh, the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt uh, was serving as the first chair of the UN Human Rights Commission, and she became the first recipient of this award that you just saw. Uh, this award was established uh, for individuals and people who go above and beyond the call of duty to protect refugees as well as displaced and stateless people. And so since 1954, it's been given to 60 uh, individuals or organizations that really uh, do just that. They go above and beyond what normal folks would do to help serve refugees. And uh, Dr. Attar, who you just saw in that video, was awarded that, uh, uh, won that prestigious award in 2018. And he is the only surgeon, like you saw, in the South Sudan Upper Nile region. And uh, it is the area, that area's home, uh, or temporary home, to at least 200,000 people, 150,000 of those or temporary residents. They are refugees who are escaping or trying to escape war in Sudan. Now, to put that in perspective for you, because sometimes we lose ideas when we see 200,000 people, if you took the whole population of Rowan County and the population of Davie County and you combine them together, you would still be about 20,000 people short of what this population area is that Dr. Attar serves in, all right? And so just to give you the idea, again, the perspective of this, he's the only surgeon that serves these 200,000 people. Now, I'm not, I don't know all the details, but I did some digging, and I found out there are 13 different general surgeons that work at Rowan Hospital alone. That doesn't count specialists. That doesn't count hospitals or uh, other surgeons that work at surgical centers. It doesn't count the hospital in Davie County. And that is just 13 general surgeons that work at Rowan hospital by itself. And so it's easy to see why people would want to give him this honor and why they would want to present this prestigious award to him. And what the UN said about Dr. Attar is that he is the latest in a long line of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. He's an ordinary person who does extraordinary things. We sometimes hear stories like that and we forget that Dr. Attar is just as human as you and I are. But the thing that drives Dr. Attar is not a desire to win an award. It's not a desire to, to get his name and his, uh, his picture and his video and his story out there. What really drives him is his deeply rooted faith in Christ. You see, what you might have noticed in that video is that he's wearing scrubs and he wears a hat that has the Samaritan's uh, Purse logo on it. You see, Dr. Attar actually works for Samaritan Purse and Franklin Graham, the president, and CEO of, of Samaritan Purse says that, yes, Dr. Attar is an ordinary man, but he has extraordinary faith. He says that Dr. Attar lives by the principles that Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's been faithful to answer God's call as he works tirelessly to save lives in South Sudan and share the hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to hear a little bit more about him next week. But this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 is a very popular, it's probably the most popular chapter in all the book of Hebrews, and sometimes called the Hall of Fame of, hate, or of Faith. And uh, these men and women who have stories kind of like Dr. Attar's, but maybe even more incredible, just sometimes unbelievable. And we forget that the folks that we read about in these stories in the Bible are like Dr. Attar. They are just ordinary people. There's nothing extraordinary about them. They don't have extra abilities. They are just ordinary people just like you and me. But what sets them apart is their extraordinary faith. We, we work through this list and we're going to work through this list over the next several weeks. And uh, we often find ourselves reading through this list and we're like, man, I wish I could be like that guy. I wish that men, these must be like superheroes that, that God gave kind of superpowers. And what we forget is these were people who were just like you and I. 
They, they had no extra talents. They had no extra abilities. What they had was an obedience to follow through with what God called them to do. And so we're going to read through this list. Uh, today we're going to make it through the, verse, uh, the first seven verses. And we're going to see and really be challenged by this idea that ordinary people can do extraordinary things with an extraordinary faith. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read the first seven verses and jump into this list of ordinary people. Uh, but Hebrews verse, chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. By faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command. So that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gift. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death. And he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved since he had pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Finally, verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he had been warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that we are ordinary people. God, and just like the men that we're reading about in this story and the ladies that we'll read about in other stories as we go through this chapter, God, we are ordinary people just like them. But we serve an extraordinary and amazing God. We serve a God who is beyond our imagination. We serve a God who is beyond anything that we can even comprehend. And God, I thank you for the fact that even though we are ordinary, you are extraordinary. And God, I thank you for the fact that we can have confidence and assurance and faith and trust in this extraordinary God. And so God, this morning, I pray that as we work through this text that we are challenged first to know what faith is, but God, also to live it out. God, I pray that we don't look at this list of people in this story, in these stories, and just say, oh, those are great stories. That, that nothing like that could ever happen in my life. It has nothing to do with me. God, these are stories of people that are just like us sitting here this morning. And God, I pray that we're reminded that we can have this exact same extraordinary faith that they have because we serve the exact same extraordinary God that they did. God, I pray this morning that you speak to us through your text. And I pray that you speak to our hearts. And God, I pray this morning that we are moved by these stories to allow our faith to shape who we are and what we believe. God, I pray this morning that we are not only moved by your text, but the moving of you through these young people that we're going to see baptized in just a few moments, God, as they publicly declare their faith and their assurance and their trust in the God who is unshakable and unmovable. And so, God, I pray that you speak to us both through your text and through the experience we're going to have in baptism. God, I pray this morning that we are your students sitting at your feet. And God, that one day we ourselves will be added to this list that by faith we inherited a great promise from the God who sent his son to save us, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we are open and ready and willing to listen to you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It has long been said that the English language is the most difficult or the hardest language to learn and to master. And what makes the English language uh, so difficult, and I will say I, I'm fully in agreement with that, that there are most of us sitting in this room, we grew up speaking English. 
And we still haven't mastered it, all right? I'm going to tell you that every paper that I ever wrote made it very clear that I did not have not mastered the English language at all. But I want you to imagine for just a moment that you were uh, you learned a different language and, and English was not your native language. One of the things that makes English so difficult is the fact that we have words that can mean multiple different things. We, we can have multiple different meanings and use the exact same word for them. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, well, really just one example. I want to show you four sentences, two at first, and I'll show you another uh, two after that. These are just four sentences that, that have a common word in all of them. So let's look at the screen. The first one, my dog barks and runs around the house whenever someone knocks on the door. All right. Now, if you've ever been to the Rakes Estate and you rang the doorbell, you know that is absolutely true. This is 100% truth right there. And we don't just have one dog that does this. Like, it's like a whole kennel going off in there. But this is what our dog does. He, he barks, or, or they bark, and they run around the house, right? Which means, in that sense, they move their legs really quickly to get from one place to another, right? They run, right? The second sentence, I'm going to run to the store. Do you need anything, right? Now, that's, a, that's probably a Stokes County phrase, except we'd probably say, like, I'm getting ready to go to the store. Y'all need anything, right? So, in that case... I'm not telling you that I'm physically going to move my legs fast to get from one place to another, right? It just means I'm going to make a short trip from here to there. I'm not going to spend all day. It's just going to be this short trip. But it's the exact same word, to run and to run. We use the exact same word, but we have two different pictures in mind. And then let me show you two more examples, uh, the third one. I don't like the way the director runs the consumer uh, service or the customer service department. Right? So in this case, run has absolutely nothing to do with running or moving. It is a, a function, okay? I don't like how he, he operates it. I don't like how he, he controls it or he navigates through it. I, I don't like how he, he manages these things. It has nothing to do with, with feet moving. It has nothing to do with moving locations. And yet it's the same word that we use. And finally, number four, this internship will run through or from June to August, right? So in this case, run is a time span. It, it'll go from this period to this period. It's this time span, right? So I want you to think, if English was not your first language, and you read sentence number four with the idea that running is your legs moving quickly to get you from one place to another, and you read sentence number four, this internship will run from June to August, somebody's going to be a really tired intern at the end of August, right? For, for three months, they are going to be moving their legs quickly to get from one place to another. And I don't know if you've ever been in an internship. Sometimes that's the case, but you're not constantly doing that, all right? And, and so I, I share with you that the, the part of the problem with our English language is just that we have all these multiple meanings for the same word. And sometimes uh, we even make up meanings that aren't exactly what that word means. By the way, the word run has 625 different meanings, all right? 625 different definitions. This may be why people don't like America, okay? I'm not saying it, but this, this, because we make up all these things. And then you have all these people who can make up their own definitions of what they want the word to mean when they feel like it that way, right? And so when you are talking about something, when you're trying to communicate something, it's very important that you communicate what that word actually means. We don't live in this world society anymore where we can just use a word and everybody knows what it means. Unfortunately, we live in this world that, that sometimes we use a word and we have to define what we mean by that word, right? Because there's confusion of what these words mean. For example, the word run. Are we moving our legs fast? Are we going on a short trip? Those kind of things. And, and so to really communicate clearly, we have to make sure that we are communicating what that word means and that the person receiving that word understands what that word means. And so the author of Hebrews is going to spend this great amount of time talking about this idea of faith. 
And so to make sure that we understand what he's talking about, he spends the first verse defining what faith is. Faith is actually one of his favorite words. He uses it 32 times in this letter, and that's second only to the book of Romans. The book of Romans uses it 40 times. This one uses it 32 times. And in this one chapter, in chapter 11, and we're going to spend some time going through, is this word occurs 22 different times. That's more than every other book of the New Testament except Romans and Galatians. Galatians occurs 22 times in that book as well. So the writer of Hebrews spends more time in this one chapter talking about faith and, and giving you examples of faith than any other writer in the New Testament. And so understanding this word is critical to understanding this chapter and really this letter as a whole. It is crucial that we get this definition right. And so he spends the, the, the first verse defining what faith is and then he gives us the rest of the chapter giving you examples of this is what it looks like to live out your faith. And so I want you to look back with me in verse 1, and I want you to see how God defines faith. And the reason we go to God's definition of faith is because it may not always match with what we thought faith was. It may not always go back to what we were taught faith was. Right? So we want to have a definition that is God's definition because this is what God is looking for. Right? So it's very important if we miss this point, we really miss this whole definition, this whole idea. And so we want to make sure we get this right. In verse 1, the writer says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And so he defines faith really in these two different parts. There's two sections of this verse. There's two things that faith is in this, uh, in this verse. Right? It is the reality of what is hoped for. And this word reality means actually to put under or to stand underneath something. Right? So to stand under something would mean that I'm fully trusting that whatever I'm standing under is going to be stable, right? I don't stand underneath stuff that I don't trust to stay where it's at, okay? All of us sitting in this room are fully trusting this roof and the ceiling is over our head, right? We have faith that this thing is not going to fall on our heads. If you didn't have faith in that, my guess is that most of you would not be sitting in here right now. You'd be outside in the parking lot or you'd be at home watching online thinking, those people are crazy, that roof is never going to hold up. But we do. We trust that this ceiling, we are under this ceiling, we're under this roof, and so we have faith in this system that is put up to holding this roof up, and we trust this system. We have confidence, we have assurance, this thing is not going to fall down on us. Now, for you guys that are watching online, you may not can see this, but you guys that are in this room, there are, you may have noticed, there are no support columns in the middle of this room. So there's nothing in the middle of this room holding all of this up over your head. So where is your assurance at that holds this roof, or what's holding this roof up? It's not support columns in the middle, it's the walls on the outside. You see, what holds the weight of above you is actually what is beside you, right? And what is holding all this above you is what is on the side of you. These walls are holding the weight of this roof, right? Now to dig a little deeper, there's something holding the weight of these walls, and is the foundation that this building is built on, right? So here's where we're saying that our assurance is not in the materials of this roof. Our, material, our assurance is not that there's metal on that roof. Our assurance is not that there's nails holding up that roof. Our real assurance is not in the roof at all. It's not in the walls. It is in the foundation 
that this building is built on. This foundation is solid. This building is solid, and it's solid, and this is the assurance and the confidence and the steadfast foundation we have that this foundation is not going to give out. It's not going to change. It's not going to shift. It's not going to wash away. It's going to be steady and firm, and this is the reality that allows us to build on it. This is the reality that allows us to build hope, and so you see the hope of our Christian life, this hope that is inside each one of us, it's not built on things that we necessarily see. It's not built on a church. It's not built on a pastor. It's not even built on emotions or feelings that stir up inside of us when we hear a certain worship song or or maybe even, let's be honest, when you read a certain Bible verse or or you go to a certain church and you have these certain feelings or emotions that, that may overwhelm you. None of that is the foundation of your faith. None of that is the reality of your faith. Why? Because churches come and go. Pastors come and go. Emotions change at the drop of a hat and feelings come and go. And if your faith is attached to any of those things, if it's built or if you're standing under any of those things, then you're missing this assurance and this confidence that comes with true biblical faith. You see, you're missing it because you're attaching faith to something that was never meant to be the object of faith in the first place. You're missing it because your faith is only as strong as the object that it's built on. And so if your faith is built on a church, if your faith is built on a pastor, if your faith is built on a song or an emotion, then your, your faith is only as strong as that. So when the music fades, your faith fades. If your pastor leaves, your faith leaves with him. If your faith is in your health and your ability is to do things and that fades, your faith fades with it. So instead, we find our reality being something that is solid. And the reason that our faith gives us assurance and confidence is because it's built on a God who is constant, steadfast, and movable, and unshakable. The faith is a reality. It's a confidence. It's an assurance. And this is what we hope for. Our assurance is not in anything around us. It is in who we are made by. And it's the one who does not change. And we don't have to worry about him waking up tomorrow and feeling different about us. We don't have to worry about him being surprised about what tomorrow holds. The reason we have assurance and confidence is because the God that we serve does not change. And we build our hope and our faith on that. But then the writer goes on to the second part, the second part of his definition. And he says, it is the proof of what is not seen. And this word that he uses for proof is an interesting word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Right? It's used here and it's used in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. In, verse, uh, in that verse, it's not translated as proof. It's translated as reproof. And the idea there is that you put something on trial, that you put evidence out. Right? So think for me for a moment. If, if you are, uh, someone is accused of a crime, then the prosecutor's job is to convince somebody that this crime has happened and this certain person is guilty of this crime. But the person he's got to convince is someone who didn't see the crime firsthand. Because if you saw the crime firsthand, you don't need convincing that the crime happened and that happened this way and this person did it. You just know it. But the job of the prosecutor, he's got a jury over there, or maybe it's a judge, but he's got to convince somebody that didn't see the crime, wasn't there when the crime happened, that one, a crime actually happened, and this is how it happened. So what does he do? He puts this on trial. He has this theory of this is what happened, and he lays out this evidence. This is the gun. This is the weapon that was used, and these are the fingerprints that are on it. This is who the gun's registered to. This is the, the video surveillance, and all of this stuff that the people, the jury, or the judge weren't first-hand witnesses to, but he lays it all out there to convince them to convict this person who did the crime. This is the proof, 
right? This is the evidence. It is all this stuff to get somebody who doesn't see, didn't see firsthand experience what we actually know happened. And so there's fingerprints, there's DNA, there's all this evidence that's laid out that this crime happened. So there's a lot of people who would say, listen, that faith, faith is just an excuse to believe in something that you don't have enough evidence to back up. You see, but the reality is that that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture doesn't teach us that faith is just this blind hoping that something's out there. It doesn't teach us it's just this, this blind idea, this blind optimism. What it teaches us, and Hebrews teaches us, is that faith actually is the evidence that we see that there is a God. You see, people ask me all the time, they're like, how can you, how can you believe in this God that you've never seen? How can you believe in this God that you never heard or you've never, you've never had any evidence for? And so you just made up this idea of having faith because you, you can't prove to me that God exists. And so we come back to the definition of, of faith that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Faith is the evidence that there is a God. You see, faith is the proof. The reason I can believe in a God that I've never seen is because I've seen the difference that the God I've never seen makes in people's lives. I've seen the alcoholic put down the bottle for the first time since he picked it up when he was a kid at the age of 10 or 12. And, and I've seen uh, adulterers and, and abusers actually come to their wives or their husbands and ask for forgiveness and to the ones that they were abusing. I've seen brokenness be restored in people's lives. And so I'm telling you that faith is not the absolute of evidence. It is the evidence that there is a God. Faith is the convictions that we hold and the actions that we take because of the assurance that we have. It is the reality that we are hoping for because it's convictions that we hold on to because it's the confidence that we have in God. There's actions and there's activities that we do and we fully trust in Him. And so faith is not this idea that we believe because there's not evidence. Faith is the evidence that we can have this assurance. Our, our beliefs are something that cannot be seen. They have to be lived out. And so living them out is the evidence, it is the proof of the faith that we have. Warren Wearsby sums this passage up greatly. And he probably gives this beautiful idea of faith. He says that true biblical faith is not blind optimism or manufactured hope-so feelings. It is certainly not believing in spite of evidence. Instead, true biblical faith is confident, obeying, excuse me, is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances or consequences. Do you hear how I define that? It is biblical faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. When we were getting ready to sing up here just a little bit ago, Josh told you that, that we can have a faith that is not shaken. We can have a faith that it doesn't matter if it's raining today or snowing tomorrow. It doesn't matter if it's 90 degrees or frost on the ground tomorrow. Our faith doesn't change by that because God doesn't change like the weather does. Our, our faith isn't shaken because one day we wake up and we live in America and everything's great. And the next day we live in America and everything's terrible. God's not shaken by those things and our faith isn't shaken. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences, we have have faith, and we fully obey the one who does not change. See, and this kind of faith is what challenges us. This is the kind of faith that the rest of these men and women in this chapter have. It's not that they were extraordinary people. It's not that they have some kind of superpowers. It's not that they rip open their shirt and there's this big G on it that stands for God's great man or Superman or anything like that. It is simply they had so much confidence in this God that they were willing to do whatever this God said, and they didn't care what people said about them. They didn't care what people thought about them. They just 
did it because they didn't care about the circumstances or the consequences. They were just ordinary men and women who faithfully and confidently obeyed God's word and it shaped who they were. And it shaped this hall of fame of faith so that we actually don't see the men and women as superheroes. What we see is there, there's this example to live up to. What we see is these are people that we can learn. This is what our faith is capable of. And it shapes who we are and what we do with our lives. And the first thing that our faith shapes is our worldview. And the worldview is simply that. It is how we view the world. It is the lens, the glasses that we look through and interpret everything around us. And when I say the world, I'm not just talking about the physical ground that we walk on. I'm talking about the people in the world, the, the, the events of our world. This is our worldview. How do we interpret these things? How do we view these things? And in verse 3, it shows us that our biblical faith shapes this view that we have of the world and the events around us. So I want you to look with me in verse 3 because verse 3 starts this whole line of by faith this, by faith that. In verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. You see, believe it or not, regardless of, of opinions, there is almost one thing that our entire world agrees on. That there, and I say almost because there, there are a few really outsiders that, that don't believe this. But there's one thing, regardless if you're a Republican, Democrat, if you're in America, or if you're in China, if you're a communist, if, whatever, you, whatever your background is, there's almost one thing that almost all of us are going to say, this is true. And it's this. That we exist, right? That there is a world that really does exist, right? There are very few people are going to argue that point, right? Now, like I said, there are a few, but very few people are going to argue there actually is dirt under our feet, that, that you and I actually exist, that I have a physical body, I feel pain, you feel pain. We all exist. This world, this universe, this galaxy, it all is true and it all is real and it all exists. It is physically here. Most people agree with that. Where the disagreement comes in is how it got here. You see, we all agree that it's here. The disagreement comes with how did it get here? How did we get to this place we are now? How did you and I arrive at this planet we call Earth? And how are we moving and sustaining life the way we are? And so there's two answers to that question. The answer one is that, that there was this small, very dense mass object in the middle of nothing. And one day it just blew up. And this thing that blew up sent rocks and Balls of fire, which we call stars and planets, scattered throughout the whole galaxy. And our rock just happened to land in just the perfect spot. You see, our rock just happened to land in this perfect spot that could sustain life. And this rock that we just happened to live on, somehow there was all this, this goo around it. And there was this perfect temperature that just happened. And over billions of years, all of these little molecules that made up dirt started to come together. And they started to make amino acids. And they started to make DNA. And those DNA became cells. And those cells became animals and those are plants and, and animals. And, and so life just sprang from all of this. But do you realize the start of all of that is that you are a cosmic accident. That you are here by random chance. The only reason that we are here is there was this random chance that our, our, our rock that was in the midst of this explosion landed in just the right place in just the right time to have just the right temperature so that all these billions of molecules could line up in just the right way to make DNA, to make an animal, to make a planet, to make you, and to make me. And so guess what? You're only here by mistake. That's the first answer to how you and I are here. But there's another answer. Because when I look at this world... 
I'm not convinced that this world and the complexities of this world are here by random chance and by mistake. You see, when I see this world, I see a complex universe, a complex galaxy that actually has order and structure to it. I see a complex universe and galaxy that actually has laws of science and physics that govern it. It means that when I hold up a pencil and a pen, it falls every single time. Why? Because there's this law that governs that. Right? It doesn't mean there's this random chance that one day I'm going to hold this pen up and it's going to go up instead of down. I don't see the world operating that way. I see the complexities of life as way too complicated for us to merge out of this goo that was sitting on the earth one day that just happened to be the right temperature. I don't see life happening that way. You see, when I look at the world, you know what I see? I see an intelligent design. I see a God out there somewhere, some way, that looked at the, this vast emptiness, and he said, let me design this. Let me create this. Let me put order and structure in place. And then let me create human beings and the complexity of life, not even just the human life, but just life in general. In general. Let, me just, let me put all of this stuff together. And so by faith, we know, we understand that we are the creation of God. And, that, and so what this does for us is it shapes not just our idea of this physical, what this does is it shapes you and me. You see, I don't look in the mirror every day and be like, you know what? I'm a good-looking cosmic accident. If there was a cosmic accident, a random chance, I'm a pretty good-looking one. You know what? All those explosions that happen, all that stuff lined up pretty well to make me. You know what I do? I look in the mirror and I see a flawed human being. But you know what else I see? A masterpiece of a creator. I see God's workmanship and I see the image of God stamped in me and on me. Why? Because I know by faith that we understand that the Creator made this world. You know what you should see in the mirror? Not random chance and accidents. You should see that you are a masterpiece of God's creation, that you have a design and a designer, that you have a plan and a purpose. And so by faith, we understand that this universe was created by God, and the people of this universe were created by God, and he's got a plan and a purpose for all of them. And so we live out this idea that, that not just this physical world, but the people that live in it, every single one of them bears the image of God, that by faith we understand they are masterpieces of God rather than cosmic accidents of God, that, that this is true of me and it's true of you. By faith, each and every person we know is created by God, and therefore they have value. And so we treat people with value and respect you see the other option is they're just accidents and there is no value and there is no purpose for them you see but by faith we understand that our God created us this invisible God that we do not see created everything that we do see by faith we care for one another we treat each other with value and respect because we know the one who created them Norman Geisler wrote a book several years ago and it's simply entitled that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And in that book, he writes this. He says, Christianity is one of a few worldviews that can justify absolute human values because it affirms that those rights are given by God and not by any other institution. You see, our faith in a creator shapes the way that we view each other and the way we interact with creation and the way we interact with each other. The only reason that another human being has value you is because they're made in the image of God. And our faith shapes the way we view them. Our faith shapes the way we view this whole world that's around us. And once we understand and recognize that, that ourselves and everything we see is created by this invisible God, then we start to look for ways to interact with Him. We start to, ways, to look for ways that we can communicate with this God. And one of the ways we do that is through worship. 
And so that's the second thing that he tells us in this passage that should be shaped by the respect or the, the uh, faith that we have. Our worldview and our worship should be shaped by faith. And, and to help us see this, the author skips the first generation. Uh, what he does, I don't know if you realize this, in chapter 11, he starts with creation and then he skips over Adam and Eve and he goes to their first children, Cain and Abel. And, and then he goes through really a whole good chunk of the Old Testament. So if you want a cliff notes verse in the Old Testament, read Hebrews chapter 11. Right? We're not going to go through the whole thing um, today, but we're going to work through all of it over time. But he skips this first generation. In verse 4, he starts this uh, short discussion of the these two sons of Adam and Eve called Cain and Abel. And the story is found in Genesis 4. Some of you uh, probably are very familiar with it. Some of you may not be familiar with it. But Cain is the oldest brother, and he becomes a farmer. He produces crops from the ground. Abel is the younger of the two, and he becomes a shepherd. He keeps the flocks, or he watches over the flocks. And so these two are looking to interact with God. They know that God exists, right? Because their parents told them, uh, hey, there's this God creation. We walked with him. We talked with him. Uh, you know it, and, 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 and it's, you see all the evidence that's here. It didn't just get here by mistake. So these two brothers, Cain and Abel, they're looking for a way to interact with God. And part of their interaction, part of their worship is to bring a sacrifice to God. And so Cain does just that. He, he gathers up some stuff from the field. He, he gathers up produce and he offers that to God. Abel gathers up from the flocks and he brings not just any flock, but he brings the firstborn of the flock. In Hebrews, uh, and so we have these two different sacrifices that are happening. Right? And then we have this idea that one of them is an acceptable sacrifice, but the other is not. Right? And so we go back and we read uh, where we said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gift. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. One commentator pointed out that Cain was a religious man, but he wasn't a righteous man. You see, there's a huge difference in those two. A religious man is going to go through the motions. A religious man is going to bring an offering and bring a sacrifice. But a righteous man is going to bring the best sacrifice. A righteous man is going to bring the, the firstborn of his flock. A righteous man is going to understand that we don't come to God without anything less than our best. And we don't come to God without understanding what he's required of us. You see, Cain brought what he had, but what he had was not what God requested. What God requested, and what Hebrews told us earlier in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that if you're looking for forgiveness, it only comes in one place. In chapter 9, verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what was Cain doing? I'm just going to go through the motions. I've got this produce here. It's just extra produce. I'll just give it to God. And Abel, on the other hand, says, I need forgiveness because I've not lived up to the standards. And I'm going to bring the blood sacrifice. And so what it tells you and I sitting in here is that our worship is shaped by our obedience to God. That you and I don't get to come to God on our terms. We come to God on His terms. You and I don't get to say, hey, I lived a good life and I've done X, Y, and Z and I gave this much money to the church and now let me into heaven. It says the only way into heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness. And so if you're looking for forgiveness through church attendance, if you're looking through forgiveness for sitting in worship every single Sunday or joining online every single Sunday, if you're working, you can write a million worship songs and it is all religious and not righteous. Why? Because the only way to forgiveness is through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so Abel understands this, and he comes to God by bringing God what God requires. He comes to God on his term. And so our faith uh, demands that we bring our best to God. Our faith uh, shapes our worship, and it demands that we obey God, and we give God what's rightly his. By faith, we know that the blood of Christ is the only acceptable gift to him, and there is no other way to be approved by him or even to approach him. You see, our worship is, is shaped by the faith that we have, the obedience that we have. And when our worship is shaped by our faith and our obedience, then our walk is part of that as well. You see, our walk is how we shape, or what is shaped by our faith. And, and it's how we live our life. And there's uh, very little information about this man in the Bible named Enoch. In fact, an Enoch is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5. And I told you we're going to start going through the Old Testament. And you're like, oh great, we got chapter 1. Now chapter 4, chapter 5, this is going to be the longest sermon ever, okay? But I promise we're not going to go through even the whole book of Genesis. But in chapter 5, it only mentions Enoch a handful of times. But in two of the handful of verses, it mentions that he walked with God. And then we get a little more information here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death. And he was not found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved since he, was, since he had pleased God. Enoch is one of only two men in the Bible who did not go through death. Right? Instead, it said he walked with God and he was not. Meaning God that took him out of this world before he died. Right? And so then we get into verse 6. And verse 6 tells us what it looked like, what kind of faith it took to please God. And verse 6 says, Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seeks him. And so there's three aspects of this walking with God that pleases God, that allows him to be approved. And the first one is that he draws near to God. He desires God. I want to be with God. I want to spend time with God. That's the first part of pleasing God. And, and I want to live by his standards because his standards are the only way that I get to be with him. Second part is that he believes he exists. And when we say he believes he exists, not just he's out there, but that he is true. And that he has truth for us. And finally, he rewards those who see him or, or seek after him. It means the truth that he has for us, he's true to follow up with it. The, 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 there is a promise that he gives us and he keeps his word each and every time. You see, Enoch walked with God. He desired to be with God. He spent time with God. And I want you to understand that Enoch lives in the time right before the flood. And the Bible describes that generation as a wicked time. A very terrible time when, when all the inclinations of a man's heart and all the world was wicked. And so Enoch is walking very different than the rest of the world. He stands out from everybody else that's following what the world is doing. Chuck Swindoll says that Enoch's faith, which kept him in step with God, kept him out of step with his generation. And please God so much that he took him from this earth before the judgment of the flood had time to end his life. You see, our faith makes us walk with God. And sometimes it makes us walk against our generation. Sometimes it makes us walk against the, what this world has for us, which brings us to the last part. You see, our faith not only shapes our worldview, it not only shapes our worship, it not only shapes our walk, but it also shapes our work. You see, our work is what we invest our time and our life and our energy doing. The example he gives for this in verse 7, it is Noah. And so, we, again, we won't go through the whole story of Noah, but in verse 7, By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what had not yet seen, and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. 
By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that, became, that comes by faith. You see, what it was is Noah is living in a time where there's never been a flood. They've never had a flood in that area at all. And so then God tells Noah, he warns Noah, he says, Listen, Noah, there's going to be this terrible flood, and I'm going to wipe out the whole world, and I'm going to let you live because you have been righteous. I'm going to let you live. And to do that, you need to trust me. You need to have assurance that what I'm about to tell you, A, is going to happen, and B, this is how to survive it. And so you need to build a boat. And you need to gather your family. You need to gather these animals. And I'm going to bring these animals to you. But you need to be faithful and obedient to me. Trust me on this, Noah. And so even though the flood hadn't happened, even though the rain hadn't started falling, Noah started building this boat. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever done something that, that kind of draws attention, Noah's building this massive boat, and there's no flood going on. There's not even a rainstorm going on. And Noah's out there building this massive boat. And I can just imagine all the ridicule of all the people. Dude, what are you doing? This is the most ridiculous thing. Do you know how above sea level we are? They didn't have sea level. They didn't think about it that way. But do you know how far from sea level we are? And you think water is going to get up here? You really think this is going to float? You really think this is going to work? Uh, Noah, let's be honest. If there was a God, and if God told you that the end of the world was coming, is this really how you want to spend it? Let's be honest. This is the part of the story of Noah that we don't think about. Noah knew the end was coming and yet he chose to do the work of God rather than living up his last days. Noah could have said, hey, God, you thanks for the warning. I appreciate you telling me that the end of the world is coming. I've got one more year, maybe 18 months. I don't even know how long. But I've got X amount of time. So let me just live it up and enjoy these last few moments I've got before the end of the world. And you see, Noah could have invested his time, his life, and all his energy in living for things and pleasures of this world. But you know what he did instead? He invested his time, his energy, and his effort in doing the work of God so that God could rescue this broken generation, that God could rescue not just him and his family, but all the animals of the earth. And yes, I take that story as a literal text. I take that story as the word of God. And I take that story as true because God's word said it is true. And so by faith, Noah worked at God's work instead of seeking his own pleasures at the end of his time. Listen, all of us sitting in this room and all of us watching online, our time is numbered. We all have an expiration date. And some of us know that we're a little closer. Some of us don't know how close we are. Some of us have no idea that it's coming, but it's coming. And so here's the question and the challenge of somebody who's an ordinary person but has extraordinary faith. What are you going to spend your life doing? Are you going to spend your life working for the pleasures of this world? Or are you going to spend your life doing the work that God has called you to do? Are you going to invest your time, your life, your energy, and all the things in this world that is going to fade away and it's not going to last and it's all eventually going to be burned up anyway? Or are you going to spend your time working for something that's going to last for eternity? Let me put it to you this way. Do you spend your work so that your family can do things on this earth? Or do you spend your work so that your family can pass on faith to a next generation and make an impact for the kingdom of God that will speak even after you are gone, just like Abel did? You see, we have a choice. We don't have a choice about the end of our life. We don't have a choice of when that happens. What we do have a choice is what we do from now until then. And by faith, we know that we can do the work that God has called us to do versus living for ourselves and living for what this world says will bring us pleasure. By faith, we know there is an end. By faith, we know that the end is coming. And by faith, we know that we should be doing His work instead of our work and seeking our pleasures. And so the question of Noah is not, are you going to build a boat? 
The question of Noah is not are you going to save all the animals. The real question of Noah is that by faith, are you going to do God's work or your own work for the rest of your life? Where are you putting your energy, your time, and your effort in? Things that are going to be burned up and aren't going to last or in something that's going to last for all of eternity. Let's pray together.